If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians this evening, I draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians and you find 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'd like for you to be so kind as to find the 10th verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I so appreciate and love your pastor. I, I want you to know it is a blessing to be a neighbor uh, to them. I, I'm not going to pick on them at all. I've been warned. But uh, so I, I just want to start by saying that we absolutely adore his children. How could you not love his beautiful wife? Um, and, and he's a good friend and a faithful pastor. And I've talked about you quite often. We've shared together and prayed together over you. He's a terrible neighbor. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, uh, we love living close to Rebecca. We, we appreciate the children. I, I even sort of grew like one of his dogs, uh, by, by, but not by choice. But, uh, but uh, I just uh, I struggle with Steve as, as a neighbor. You know, I tried to grow a beard. His is better. It's just better. I tried to keep my hair cut nice and trim. His is just better than mine. Try to keep my truck clean. He's got four. I like to go on a few trips. I can't keep up with him. And then there's the problem with the beer cans everywhere, up and down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a blessing. I'll never forget when he came to me and said, um, our church is facing some real opportunities. And I, and he said that very personal, I want to make sure that I lead our church correctly. Now, I, I've never had any fear about your future as a church um, because I understand your love for the Word, your love for the Lord, and the integrity of your pastor and his wife and their family. There's a sweet spirit here. Anybody can sense that. Even as you worship and sang in unison, I recognize that tonight I'm with the saints. But I do think there's a great threat facing Bible Baptist Church. And I want to share a little bit from God's Word about that, if you will, in the spirit of a prophet. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a pastor and uh, very much still learning how to lead my church. But in 1988, I was growing up in the state of Alabama where Laurel and I are from. In 1988, 30 people started the church that I pastor in the living room of a retired pastor. So in 1988, 30 people started a church on the west side of Spartanburg. Now, many of you are very familiar with Spartanburg, and if so, you've probably been to the Westgate Mall area. And if you have, you will know that in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, most of the resources and the growth and the money in Spartanburg was on the east side, the blue blood, the old money. But in the late 70s and early 80s, when the Westgate Mall was built out toward the intersection of Highway or Interstate 26 and 85, it signaled that the west side of Spartanburg was beginning to grow. And if you, like me, live in the upstate, you know that Greenville and Spartanburg have really grown together. I often say they had a love child. His name is Greer. And so when you, when you leave Spartanburg and you drive to Greenville, one town sort of bleeds into the other, and the patriarchs of my church were asked by the local association of the Southern Baptist Convention to consider a church on the west side of town. 
The founding pastor, Reverend Floyd Loudermilk, had pastored a wonderful church in Spartanburg, retired to Lake Hartwell, hated retirement, moved back to Spartanburg, and he and his wife, by faith and very little money, started what was then called a mission, that's what they were called, in 1988 with 30 people. Now, I'm going to say something, and, and I say it incredibly humbly, but I say it because I think it will help you Take what I am about to share with you with great seriousness. The church that I pastor has gone through a lot of ups and a lot of downs. But by God's grace, on Sunday, about 4,600 people worshipped at Church at the Mill. Now, we don't ever post those numbers, and I would not share those numbers if Steve did not know me so well. I want to share that with you because how do you go from 30 to 4,600? How does that happen? Because to be honest with you, you can do that. There are enough unchurched people between here and Malden to fill up 10 churches that size. And not only do I believe you can do it, I believe you've been positioned to do it. Now, you're not alone. I have some dear brothers who serve and pastor in this community. I'm very good friends with pastors here in Simpsonville, in addition to Steve. But look at where God's placed you. Look at how he's positioned you. You are a wonderful and generous people, and he's told me that, and I recognize that. But there's not enough money in this room to buy all this land today that you now own. And then with the new opportunities of expansion and the ever-growing community of unchurched people, there's a great migration happening in our nation. And we are seeing tons of people move to South Carolina because of conservative political leadership, because of good school systems, because of a booming jobs economy, because of real estate. And with that, they are bringing with them the fate of their lost soul. And so I really hope you'll take just a moment with me and grasp a sermon to help protect you with your greatest threat. What is the greatest threat to Bible Baptist Church continuing to become a church where hundreds and dare say even thousands of people are reached for Christ? You say, well, maybe pastor, it's moving away from the word of God. That certainly is a threat, but I don't think that's going to happen. I know it's not going to happen under the current leadership. I think there's enough people in here who love the Lord Jesus and love his word and believe two things that I believe with all of my heart. The Bible is true and Jesus saves. So I don't think your doctrine will be the first way the enemy will attack you. I don't think that's how it's going to happen. You say, well, it's some sort of illicit or rebellious, salacious sin. Certainly there can always be sin in the camp. Myself and Steve know many men who served in many churches only to allow sin to sneak into their life and they find themselves disqualified from the pulpit because of some infidelity, some immorality. You've all been touched by those types of sin. You've all been impacted by it. And while I do think that's a threat, I know the integrity of the man who is your leader. I know what he says about the leadership of the men and the women in this church. So do I believe that salacious, illicit sin could threaten Bible Baptists? I do, but I don't think it's your greatest threat. Your greatest threat is that in this journey that's going to stretch you and push you and move you, not away from God's Word, not to move off the doctrines of our faith, but a journey that's going to cause you to have to think 
differently about engaging people who aren't like you, who don't look like you, who've never worshipped like you. A journey that's going to cause you to take that which you are very familiar, which is your church that you love, that operates a certain way, where God is going to stretch you, the way the enemy is going to attack is by causing your unity to fail. So let me say this again. The greatest threat to Bible Baptist Church becoming the significant force for the gospel that God has uniquely and sovereignly positioned you to be is for you to succumb to disunity, for the fabric of the fellowship to fall apart at the altar of preference and opinion. Because I want to tell you something that was told to me in seminary, and I've never forgotten this. My New Testament professor walked in and he said, Young men, where there is no unity, there is no gospel. Now, let me tell you what I mean. If you leave here right now and you drive in any direction, and I live in your community and you live in mine, so you could drop yourself in any small town in the upstate and go in any direction, you will pass dozens of churches. And most of them have relatively solid doctrine. Most of them have a covenant. Most of them have a website that outlines a certain faith and message or creed that we would describe as Orthodox Christianity. Most of them believe in God, revealed to us as three in one. Most of them believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Most of them believe in the incarnation of Jesus and the blood shed for our sins that happened on a cross by a man who was born of a virgin. Most of them believe that he came and lived and died and rose again and upon his resurrection gave the orders to the church to go and reach the world, ascended into heaven, and on the day of Pentecost sent the Holy Spirit, which birthed the church in Acts chapter 2. And from that point forward, the pure church, the gospel-driven church, is the church of ordinary people with an extraordinary Savior filled with a supernatural spirit and an inerrant Bible. Do you believe that? I believe that. Most churches in this community would say they believe that, and they're dead. They're dead. And if you were to walk into those churches, you would receive a warm handshake. If you were to walk in those churches, you would be welcomed, and you would probably have an entire row or pew to yourself. So what has happened to the churches of our community? At some point, in some way, shape, or form, they lost their mission, their vision. And one of the ways the enemy attacks the mission and the vision of the church is he divides her. That the, the unity begins to suffer. And if you love to study the Bible, as I study the Bible, what you realize is that this is not new. The minute the church was born, the enemy began to attack the church. And yes, at times he attacks it with false teaching. And at other times he attacks it with illicit sin. But often what Paul and others write about is the unity of the faith in the Son of God. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul offers a call to unity, a desire to see people together. And this is what I would say to you. I would say that if you want to position Bible Baptist to be a significant force for this community, then this is a subject you talk about while there's unity. In other words, if we talk about unity when there is disunity, often it's too late. 
I'm so thankful that churches can repent, that churches that lose their way can get back on course, that revival can come. But you are unified. You are unified. There is a sweet spirit. There is generous giving. There is a commitment to the word. There is passionate worship. There is a heart. I'm looking at a diverse group. You are of different ethnicity, socioeconomic status. You are the picture of a healthy church. But your greatest enemy would be to decide that you have arrived because you have not yet scratched the surface of what God can do on this soil through this church. But you better fight for unity. And, and this is why Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. The scripture tells us that Paul more than likely wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. Everything Paul and John and Luke and James wrote is not in the scripture. God preserved what he wanted to preserve, but even the biblical writers said if we wrote down everything, there's not enough books in the world to hold it. So in the sovereignty of God, as he held forth the supreme scripture... He preserved for us two of the four letters. The reason we know there are four letters is because there is a reference in 1 and 2 Corinthians to former letters that he had written. Paul planted the church in Corinth and spent two years there talking about the gospel in unity, and then he left. And when he left, guess what they lost? They lost the unity, and they began to lose the gospel. And factions began to develop in the church, and the church was in trouble of losing its way. And when factions began to envelop the church, sin snuck into the church, abuse snuck into the church. There were all kinds of things going on in Corinth. It is quite an interesting read. They abused the covenant of marriage. They abused the Lord's Supper. They abused leadership. And so Paul wrote them the book of 1 Corinthians, calling them to repentance. And when he did, he recognizes that unity is their greatest need. And this is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, tonight I just want to walk you through verses 10 down through verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. This is what Paul says. I'm reading tonight from the King James Version. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So the first thing we see is that Paul calls for their unity. He says, I want you to have the same mind and the same judgment. One of the things that we see over and over in Scripture is that the unity of the people of God is what defines them as the people of God. It's what makes us different. We're not called to be saved because of our superiority or our righteousness or, praise God, our intelligence. And for me, good looks. I'm so thankful that's not what my salvation is based on. I'm better looking from a distance. That's why our online audience continues to grow. They get further and further away and still hear the word. We know, we know that what sets the people of God apart is not the greatness of who they are. It's the greatness of the one who saves them. In fact, we're just a display of grace undeserved, of mercy given with no merit, nothing demanded of us. And yet, one of the most beautiful things about that is that when we are saved, we are not just saved into Christ, we're saved into the church. In, in, in other words, I was not just bound to Christ when I got saved at a fifth Sunday night singing in the spring of 1986 as an eight-year-old boy. I was bound into the body of Christ. And therefore, to walk with the Lord is by default to walk with his people. Now, health, war, travel, business at times might keep me from the weekly fellowship, 
But the Bible clearly discourages moving away from the gathering together as some, even in the book of Hebrews, had gained a habit of doing. I not only need the Lord, I need the Lord's people because it is through the Lord's people that the Lord transforms me into being the person he wants me to be. The act of sanctification, which is a work inwardly by the presence of the Holy Spirit to transform me to be more like Jesus, is also a work outwardly because as the Spirit moves and works in your life, your life rubs up against my life, and I not only feel the manifestation of the Spirit in me, I sense and feel how the Spirit is working in you. And when the Spirit is working in you, and then the Spirit is working in me, and the Spirit is working in her, and the Spirit is working in him, and we together are attempting to walk hand in hand on the mission, this sweet aroma of an empty tomb forms unity. And so this is what Paul says, I beseech ye to make sure that you make this a priority. In other words, before reaching the lost is a priority, make sure you're together. Before building a facility is a priority, make sure you are one. Yes, it's good to dart your eyes and cross your T's doctrinally. But what good is beautifully written doctrine if there's backbiting and hurting and gossiping and envy among one another? What Jesus do we have to preach if he cannot transform us enough inwardly that we become lovers of one another? And one of the beautiful displays of the gospel is seen in this passage when he says these words, come with me in the text, we'll swim in it all night. Look what he says beginning... In the second phrase, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you but, so the opposite of divisions comes in the second phrase of verse 10, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. The idea of judgment in the original language was that we see things the same way. Our worldview it's the same. So, so what does that mean to see things the same way? Because by God's grace, when we're saved, our individual personalities aren't erased. I'm thankful for my personality. And the more I get to know your pastor, I'm more thankful for my personality, right? <laughs> the reality is when we all look at each other and we think about our personality and our preferences and our desires, I see so many strengths. I see so many noble characteristics in him that I want in my life. So his presence and his friendship as your pastor and my neighbor long makes me want to be more faithful. So the diversity of the body does not lead to division. It leads to unity because we have this mind that is in you which is also in Christ Jesus. This is why the walk that we talk about which unifies us has to begin with the heart because it is the heart that Jesus enters when we're born again. But it must infect and influence the mind so that I perceive and think the way you perceive and think. How can I get my mind on the same page as you? Well, I can't. But if both of us get our minds on the same page as Christ, we end up in the same place. This is why Romans 1, he says, if you want to know the will of God, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm thankful for moments at the altar where God has broken the heart of two people who have fallen out with one another and reconciliation happens. But for a church to proactively protect unity, you need to think the way Christ thinks. Several years ago, 
I was helping my church walk through this during some unbelievably important changes that we were making. Not changes to move away from the gospel, not changes to ever compromise the communicating of God's word, but changes that look different, changes that change church some, changes that were uncomfortable. And I asked my congregation to think about 10 questions when they got upset about something. 10 questions to protect unity. So I'm, I'm prophetically saying, as you grow and as you stretch yourself and as you push and as you welcome new leadership and disciple new people and as you think outside the box, never moving off the word of God, and you run up against something that you struggle with, that you disagree with, an, an area, a preference, here are 10 questions. I want to read them to you very quickly. Number one, is what I feel in this situation an opinion based on preference or a conviction based on Scripture? Before I ever decide it's worth struggling with, is what I'm feeling based on my preference or a biblical conviction? Number two, have I prayerfully examined my heart for any selfish motives, preconceived prejudices, or unhealthy influences? Before I struggle with you, sister, or you, brother, have I looked at my heart and asked the question, is there anything in me that would cause me to struggle? Number three, do I have all the information I can gather about the issue in a Christ-like way? I make some of my worst decisions when I react to part of the information. Number four, have I prayed for the person or the people I disagree with and asked the Lord to guide them as they examine their heart? It's just very hard for me to grow weary or bitter or angry at someone if I'm also on my knees interceding on their behalf. Number six, or number five, have I considered and prayed about the best way to share my feelings? A lot of church unity is threatened when somebody just gets fed up and said, I'm going to say something. Usually what comes out next is not well thought out. It's not done in an edifying way. Number six, have I sought counsel from other believers who are separate from the situation? You can make a mistake without the counsel of others. The book of Proverbs talks about the wisdom in number. Number seven, Am I controlling what I say and how I say it and to whom I say it in order to walk that fine line between gossip and sharing my feelings? See, a lot of times gossip's just baptized by Baptists, and I am one, been one all my life, who say, I just want to share something with you. Would you just, can, I, can we pray together about something? And you ain't praying to lick, you're just talking. Number nine, have I given the Lord time to work in response to my prayers? Number eight, rather. Have I given the Lord time? And number nine, before I act, am I convinced that if I do not act, the church could suffer? And finally, number 10, have I ever stopped loving people even in the midst of my disagreement? That helped our church. Our church was not rocked with controversy. We've been through multiple building programs and the launching of campuses and the changing and the hiring of staff and there's not a schedule we hadn't tried on Sunday morning, and we've moved service times and programs, and the sweet unity has been what we do is not the end. The end is who we're trying to reach. And so when we think about this call to unity, Paul then calls out their loyalty. See, the problem in Corinth is, is they had grown too loyal to leaders. You say, well, pastor, it's good for us to be loyal to our leaders. It is 
up until the point your loyalty and love for anyone in leadership causes you not to first and foremost be loyally in love with the Lord. Look, look what the Bible says in your text beginning in verse 8. For it hath been declared unto me, so Paul's saying, this is what I heard, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So Paul says, I've heard y'all are divided. And then he tells us what they're divided about. Look at verse 12. Now, this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So some factions had developed, and in their rank and order of spiritual superiority, there were people nudging their way into power, and they were saying, let me tell you why I deserve to be heard. I'm one of Peter's disciples. And then another one said, oh, no, 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 no. He didn't quite get it right. I'm under Apollos' leadership. And then another would say, oh, no, the Apostle Paul was who I learned under. And then there were some that just played the trump card. Well, where would Jesus? Doesn't that always get the right answer in Sunday school? If you don't know what to say, my goodness, just say Jesus, right? And, and, and Paul actually took issue with this. He took issue with this division within the church based on loyalty to some leader. One of the things that has happened to fast-growing churches is the birth of something called the celebrity pastor. The, the, the idea that somehow the man of God is the reason for the anointing. I believe in anointed men of God, but God can do what he wants to with Bible Baptists regardless of whether or not your pastor's a leader. God can do what he wants to with Church at the Mill in Spartanburg whether or not I make it home tonight. It is far bigger than any one person or position. And so one of the things you have to do is you have to marry yourself to the Savior and then ask the question, not which leaders do we need or will fall off the map, which leaders are we growing and developing? We have to give leadership away, not hold on to it, which is why Paul calls out their loyalty. And something interesting happens if you have your copy of God's Word open. Flip over one page and look at chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, and he comes back to these same people. He mentions Apollos again in chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. He says, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Paul said, who are these people? And then look at verse 6. I love verse 6 of the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Elevating any individual, lining yourself up behind any faction in any church because one man or one woman has declared that something must never be changed or that something must be changed is elevating a human personality over the Savior that redeemed all of us. Let, let me tell you what we deserve as leaders in churches. The same thing you deserve, hell. But by God's grace, he saved us. And so there's no grounds for us to declare that our righteousness, that our experiences, that our theological degrees, that our number of years teaching Sunday school consecutively, no matter how long we've served on some committee, there's no right for us to show up at a church and push and fight against the growth to reach people for the kingdom in the name of our own desires because of some clout we've made up. It won't matter had he not saved you. It won't matter had he not redeemed you. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't ever line up so loyal to an individual that you miss the mission. And then follow the individuals who love the missions more than they love their platform. Who love the influence of the gospel more than they love their own followers. Who love to speak the gospel more than they love to count likes on social media. Line up behind men and women who ooze humility 
and the church will be protected. Thirdly, and I know it's a school night. We'll get out of here at some point. He didn't give me a time. There's a baptismal pool, so we're going to be here a while. <laughs> so Paul calls for their unity. Paul calls out their loyalty. It was misguided. But if you go back to the home passage beginning in verse 13, Paul reminds them of what reality is. Look at verse 13. It's a doctrinal gem right in the middle of this gold mine of a passage. Look what he says beginning in verse 13. Is Christ divided? These are rhetorical questions, and the answer to them are always no. Is Christ divided, church family? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So what's he doing? He's taking them on that rhetorical journey of reminding them what reality is. He goes on to say in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now, Paul's not anti-Baptist. In fact, Paul was Baptist. He was Southern Baptist. I'm sorry, but he was Baptist. No, I'm just kidding. Paul believed in immersion. He believed in baptism. He's not against that. He baptized many people. We don't know the number. But in this case, he had not had the opportunity to baptize these individuals, and now he's thankful for it because they're fighting over who baptized them. Who baptized them has become more important than the name in which they were baptized under. This is one of the reasons why in the assignment of baptism, Jesus said, don't just baptize them, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that the declaration of the baptism is connected to the name of the one who's done the work. The person being baptized has done nothing to save themselves. The act of being baptized does nothing to save you. All it does is declare outwardly what the Savior did inwardly. So when you do it, do it in His name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying, I'm glad I can't be brought into the debate. I didn't baptize many of you. And then his mind takes him back to a few he may have baptized. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 15. Lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name, and I baptized also the house of, of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. He's going, nah, I think I may have baptized a few in Stephanus's or Stephanus's family, but I'm not sure how many. And he's pointing out the reality that they have become so consumed with personal preference and personality that they missed the Savior, which then leads to the incredible idea of unity. What do we really have in common? Any Clemson fans in here? Must not any, any Carolina fans? You've been an optimistic crowd this year. Really optimistic. You know? How many of you were born and raised here in the upstate? Raise your hand. All right. There's some of us here who we weren't, but we got here as quick as we could. How many of you were born in another state? Right? Right? Think about this. Anybody here ever been broke in your life? Ever been poor? Raise two hands if you're broke tonight. Pastor, I'm broke tonight, right? The brother in the back stood up. Anybody here ever had the opportunity to get a, a degree post-bachelor, a graduate degree of some nature? Any graduate degree? Yeah, I'll see a few. Proud of you, absolutely. Right? Look at us. Some of you go to work right out of high school or maybe didn't even finish school and you've worked hard all your life with your hands. You'd be a blue-collar guy. Any of those in here? Yeah. So, so look, look at us. We're black, we're white. We're anywhere from rich to poor. Some of us have high degrees of education and some of us learned and built everything with our own hands, with our bare knuckles. Some of you in the room, God chose in the womb to make you a woman. That's how it happened. And 
You've been blessed to be a wife and a mother. You're a daughter, you're a sister, you're an aunt. Others of you never have that. I certainly haven't, never will, but I'm a son, I'm a nephew, I'm an uncle, I'm a husband, I'm a father. Think about how different we are. So, so how does it happen? I'm reminded of what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. You don't have to turn there. I'd just like to read it to you. I go over this with every new member at Church at the Mill. I teach new member class every month, and every new member hears this. Paul says these words in Ephesians chapter 4. If you'd like to do something a little, maybe a mental exercise, in your mind, count the number of times you hear me say the word O-N-E, which is one, the number one. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you Oh, how many ones did I say? Seven. Seven. When churches remember this, they don't split over the music. They don't fight over the color of the carpet. They support the pastor as he builds a staff. They're happy to move their class if it's needed to be moved. They'll change their whole schedule if it means reaching more people. They're glad to take things we've always done and put them on the shelf of things we used to do and try things we've never done because we think it'll be more effective. Because there's no I, there's no mine. It's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope. And when you count all that, then you remember something. I have more in common with every person in this room who may look completely different from me than I do any person in the world that might match my profile. The theological beauty of the gospel means that unity should be the telltale sign that we are truly saved, which is why I would just end with the last step Paul offers. Paul reminded them of the reality, but finally, in this passage, Paul restates his priority. Look at verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize. Now, this doesn't mean Paul's anti-baptism, but he's saying, I wasn't sent just to dip you in water and create an own faction that followed me. No, no, no. Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words. In other words, my motive wasn't just getting you dunked and my method wasn't being the most charismatic communicator to build my own following. No, no, no. To preach the gospel. Then look what the passage says. Let the text speak. Not with words of wisdom. Why? Why is there no need to manipulate people? Why is it good to declare the truth of the gospel and let the Spirit of God do in it in people's heart according to his will? Here's why. When we add any gimmick to the gospel or we make any part of the gospel about our personal preference, our opinion, or what we want, the Scripture says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. We empty the power of the gospel we preach when the gospel we preach to others is not powerful enough to unify us. 
And, and this is why Paul is saying, let me tell you what my priority was. My priority was not to unify you. Unity's not the goal. Salvation's the goal. Glory to Christ is the goal. Spiritual maturity is the goal. More people missing hell and making heaven because Bible Baptist Church was here, that's the goal. The fruit of chasing the Savior above our own personal preferences, our own opinions, our own desires, the fruit of that will be the unity that draws us together, which is exactly why just before his arrest in John 17, Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, for them also which shall believe on me through the word. In other words, Jesus saying, Lord, I'm not just praying for the 12 I just had dinner with. I'm not just praying for the ones whom feet I just washed. I'm not just praying for the four or 500 disciples who had gathered around me before I descended from Bethany into Jerusalem. I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for the people who will one day believe in my name. This is Jesus saying, I'm praying for Bible Baptist Church. And this is what he prayed. John 17, verse 21. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. So Jesus said, my prayer, Lord, is that you unify them around the identity of who we are, and we are one God who has revealed himself in three persons, and the three persons have been in perfect unity for all of eternity. That's what I want my church to look like, and here's why. He says, that the world may believe Thou hast sent me. Let me give you this one theological truth to think about. Jesus, not pastor. Jesus just said, the validity of the truth of his coming to a lost world is dependent on the unity of his church. The validity to lost people as to whether or not there's any truth to the gospel, is the spirit-filled, beautiful unity that happens in a church that decides she will stretch and grow and reach and toil and labor and sweat, and she will do it together, step in step, arm in arm, protecting the unity of the faith. This was not a reactionary sermon. Not one time, as the Lord is my witness, standing in this pulpit, not one time has your pastor ever mentioned to me that there was disunity at Bible Baptist. But the enemy's coming for your unity. He's coming for it. He doesn't have to attack churches that aren't reaching anyone. He doesn't have to attack churches that don't have campuses which can expand. He's not interested in attacking churches with pastors who aren't filled with the Spirit and preaching the Word like yours is. He's coming after you. And he's going to come at the level of your unity. So just decide whether you be a 14-year-old young woman, an 84-year retiree, whether it be young, old, black, or white, new to the faith, or coming back for the first time in a long time. Just decide. As much as it depends on you, you will fight for the unity of the faith of Bible Baptist so that more people can have an opportunity to hear the message that changed your life. Somebody got the gospel to you. Somebody did.
Some church was unified and got the message to you. You be that church to this community. I want to see it. I want to watch it. I want to hear your pastor brag on what God has done. And I want you to go forward. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word. Thank you.